0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. I want to talk about a thing that happened this week, and it's something that, is, and something that I feel is important for me to talk about, mostly because I have a platform, even though it's not a super big one, and I'm not hugely influential, but it's still a platform, and I want to use it to do good in the world. I received a message this week from someone who tried to convince me that I don't need to call out racism when it happens in a story because that was the way it was back then and you just let it sit in the light of history and be awful. I responded that I don't care when the racism happened. I'm calling it out because it would be wrong to do anything else and I've tried to be someone who does right in the world. That led to a rather lengthy, convoluted, and not entirely sensical screed on how everything and everyone has something horrible in their past, and if you're going to call out racism in stories, then you also need to call out slavery and prejudice in the epic of Gilgamesh, and history should be celebrated and other things that I didn't understand, because even though I'm a pretty smart guy, I couldn't make it add up. I don't care if it was considered acceptable when it was written. It's wrong. The Founding Fathers having slaves and enshrining that black slaves are three-fifths of a person into the Constitution is wrong. Mark Twain wrote racist stuff. Huckleberry Finn, considered to be the best thing he's ever written, is nothing but one long racist screed, and he's wrong to have done it. Have there been people throughout history who enslaved, tortured, abused, killed, and genocidally extinguished whole races of people merely for the crime of being a different race than they are? Yes. Was it wrong to do so? Yes. Should we sweep that under the rug and forget about it? No. Because as the old adage says, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. We need to know the past of the human race so we can grow and learn from it. We need to learn from the mistakes and failures of people so we don't make the same mistakes. To ignore what happened and what people said and how they acted and not call it out for what it is is irresponsible, especially for me, a white guy in a position of privilege and influence. It demeans everyone who fought against it and suffered beneath it, and to just hope that people see the racism for what it is in the story and not say anything about it is insulting and an abdication of my responsibility. I always welcome any comments, concerns, or messages you might wish to send me. I'm always happy to receive them because I want to make the show as good as it can be. But if you come at me talking crap to me for calling out racism because it's not fair that you pick on racism in these stories and not in everything else... Then I will kindly respond and only work that much harder to call it out on my show, like I'm doing now. Racism is wrong, period. I don't care if it was Grok the Homo sapien killing Blurg the Homo Neanderthalus because his face is shaped differently, or if it's George Floyd being killed by asphyxiation under the knee of a racist asshole cop. I will call it out when it happens in a story. If I was reading the Epic of Gilgamesh, I'd call it out there. If I was reading the Constitution, I'd call it out there, but I'm not. I'm reading The Horror from the Hills by Frank Belknap Long, and there's racism in the story, and it's wrong. And if you don't think I should be calling it out, guess what? You're a racist. You may not support racist beliefs or be trying to start a race war or openly throw slurs at minorities, but if you don't stand up and call it out when it happens, you're supporting them. And so I call it out because I want to be a good person and do what's right and not what's convenient or easy. Okay. (sighs) Enough lecturing. on with the show. Chapter 3. An Archaeological Digression The figure is totally unfamiliar, said Dr. Imbert. Nothing even remotely resembling it occurs in Asian or African mythology. He scowled and returned the photograph to his youthful visitor, who deposited it on the arm of his chair. I confess, he continued, that it puzzles and disturbs me. It's it's preposterously archaeological, if you get what I mean. It isn't the sort of thing that one would imagine. Harris nodded. I doubt if I could have imagined it from scratch. Without imaginative prompting or guidance from someone who had actually set eyes on it, it would be very difficult to conceive of anything so... so... radical, put in Dr. Imbert. I believe that is the word you were groping for. That thing is a symbolic embodiment of the massed imaginative heritage of an entire people. It's a composite, like the Homeric epics or the Sphinx of Giza. It's the kind of art manifestation you would expect a primitive people to produce collectively. It's so perversely diabolical and contradictory in conception that one can scarcely conceive of a mere individual anywhere in the world deliberately sitting down and creating it out of his own imagination. I will concede that an unusually gifted artist might be capable of imagining it, but, but I doubt if such an obscenity would ever form in the human brain without a debt, and No individual living in a civilized state would experience the need, the desire, to imagine such a thing, and least of all to give it objective expression. Mental illness, of course, might account for it, but the so-called interpretive reveries of psychotics are nearly always of predictable nature. Grotesque and absurd as they may sometimes be, certain images occur in them again and again, and these images are definitely meaningful. They follow prescribed patterns, are crude and distorted representations of familiar objects and people. The morbidities out of which they arise have been studied and classified, and a psychiatrist who knows his business can usually decipher them. If you have ever examined a batch of drawings from a mental institution, you will have noticed how the same motifs occur repeatedly and how utterly unimaginative such things are from a sane and sophisticated point of view. It is, of course, true that the folk creations of primitive peoples usually embody or symbolize definite human preoccupations, but more boldly and imaginatively, and occasionally they depart from the predictable to such an extent that even our expert is obliged to throw up his hands. I have always believed that most of the major and minor monstrosities that figure so conspicuously in the pantheons of barbarian races feathered serpents, animal-headed priests, grimacing sphinxes, etc., are synthetic conceptions. Let us suppose, for instance, that a tribe of reasonably enlightened barbarians is animated by the unique social impulse of cooperative agriculture and is moved to embody its ideals in some colossal fetish designed to suggest both fertility and brotherhood. In, let us say, a great stone magna mater with arms outstretched to embrace all classes and conditions of men. Then let us suppose that cooperative agriculture falls into disrepute, and the tribe becomes obsessed by dreams of martial conquest. What happens? To an obligato of tom-toms and war drums, the mother goddess is transfigured. A spear is placed between her extended arms, the expression of her face altered from benignity to ferocity. Great... Gashes chiseled in her cheeks, red paint smeared on her arms, breasts, and shoulders, and her ears lopped off. Let another generation pass, and the demoniac goddess of war will be transformed into something else, perhaps into a symbol of the most abandoned kind of debauchery. In a hundred years, the original fetish will have become a monstrous caricature, a record in stone of the thoughts and emotions of generations of men. It is the business of the ethnologist and the archaeologist to decipher such records, and if our scientist is sufficiently learned and diligent, he can, as you know, supply a reason for every peculiarity of configuration. Competent scholars have traced in a rough way the advance or retrogression of racial groups in ethical and aesthetic directions— merely by studying and comparing their objects of worship, and there does not exist a more fruitful science than idolography. But occasionally our ethnologist encounters a nut that he cannot crack. A god or goddess so diabolical or grotesque or loathsome in confirmation that it is impossible to link it associatively with even the most revolting of tribal retrogressions. It is a notorious fact that Human races are less apt to advance than circle back on the course of evolution, and that idols and fetishes that were originally conceived in a comparatively noble spirit very often become, in the course of time, embodiments of the bestial and obscene. Some of the degraded objects of worship now employed by African bushmen and Australian aborigines may conceivably have been considerably less revolting 10 or 15,000 years ago. It is impossible to predict the depths to which a race may descend and the appalling transformation which may occur in its sacred imagery. And so, occasionally, we encounter shapes that we scarcely like to speculate about, shapes so complicatedly vile that they haven't even analogous counterparts in comparative mythology. Your fetish is of that nature. It is, as I say, preposterously archaeological, and it differs unmistakably, although I am willing to concede a superficial resemblance from the distorted dream images conjured up by psychotics and surrealistic artists. Only racial dissolution and decay extending over wide wastes of years could, in my opinion, account for such a ghastly anomaly. He leaned forward and tapped Algernon significantly upon the knee. You haven't told me its history, he admonished, Reticence is an archaeologist's prerogative, and in our work it is always an asset. But for a young man, you're almost abnormally addicted to it. Algernon blushed to the roots of his hair. I'm seldom actually reticent, he said. At the museum, they all think I talk too much. I have an exuberant, officious way at times that positively appalls Mr. Schollard. But this affair is so... so... "'outside of all normal experience that I've been dreading to tax your credulity with a resume of it.' Dr. Imbert smiled. "'Your books reveal that you are a very cautious and honest scholar,' he said. "'I don't believe that I'd be inclined to question the veracity of whatever you may choose to tell me.' "'Very well,' said Algernon, "'but I must entreat that you suspend judgment until you've heard all of the evidence.' One can adduce rational explanations for each of the incidents I shall describe, but when one views them in the sequence in which they occurred, they resolve themselves into a devastatingly hideous enigma. Very tersely, without self-consciousness or affectation, Algernon then related all that he knew and all that he surmised and suspected about the thing whose image spread defilement on the paper before him. Dr. Imbert heard him out in silence, but his eyes as he listened... "'grew bright with horror. "'I doubt if I can help you,' he said when Algernon was done. "'This thing transcends all of my experience.' "'There ensued a silence. "'Then Algernon said in a tone of desperate urgency, "'But what are we to do? "'Surely you've something to suggest.' "'Dr. Imbert rose shakingly to his feet. "'I have, yes. "'I know someone who can perhaps help.' He's a recluse, a psychic, a magnificent intellect obsessed by mysteries and mysticisms. I put little faith in such things. To me, it's a degradation, but I'll take you to him. I'll take you anyway. God knows you're in trouble. That is obvious to me. And this man may be able to suggest something. Roger Little is his name. No doubt you've heard of him. He used to be a criminal investigator. A good one. A psychologist. Discerning, erudite, shrewd, no mere detective novel sleuth. Algernon nodded, understanding. Let us go to him at once, he said. Chapter 4 The Horror on the Hills It was while Algernon and Dr. Imbert were journeying in the subway toward Roger Little's residence in the borough of Queens that the horror was announced to the world. An account of its initial manifestation had been flashed from Spain at midday to a great American news syndicate, and all of the New York papers had something about it in their evening editions. The news graphics account was perhaps the most ominously disturbing in its implications. A copywriter on that enterprising sheet had surmised that the atrocities were distinguished by something outré, something altogether inexplicable, and by choosing his diction with unusual care... "'he had succeeded in conveying to his unappreciative readers "'a tingling intimation of shockingness, of terror. "'Beneath half-inch headlines, which read "'Hideous Massacre in the Pyrenees,' he had written, "'The authorities are completely baffled. "'Who would wish to assassinate fourteen simple peasants? "'They were found at sundown on the mountain's crest. "'All in a row they lay very still, very pale, "'very silent and pale beneath the soft Spanish sky.' All about them stretched new-fallen snow, and beside them on the white expanse were marks, peculiar and baffling. Men do not make footprints a yard wide, and why were all the victims laid so evenly in a row? What violence was it that could deprive them of their heads, drain the blood from their bodies, and lay them stark and naked in a row upon the snow? And that wraps up chapters three and four of The Horror from the Hills by Frank Belknap Long. I certainly hope you are enjoying it. Um, I'm sorry I went off on a whole little thing at the start of the show, but it just, it really, really got to me that, you know, somebody would, would, would write that. It's like, like, what, what are you trying to prove? What are you trying to, what are you trying to say about all of this? Anyway, (sighs) I said my piece and I'm done. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, please feel free to, uh, follow me on Twitter at weird tales pod. You can find, you can email me at the weird tales podcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you feel so inclined, please feel free to support me on Patreon. Uh, I've got three tiers on there. $1 for general support. $3 gets you a thank you on the show. $10 gets you a bonus feed in which I'm reading a bonus story, which is really kicking into the good part now. Um, uh, and uh, I'm really enjoying going back through it. It was one of my favorite stories the first time I read it, and uh, I hope that those of you who are listening to it are enjoying it. I also uh put up the episodes a couple days early on the show, I usually try and get them up on the Patreon. I usually try to get them up about Thursday or Friday. It goes out to everybody who is uh a, a Patreon supporter. Um, so uh, even if you just kick in one dollar, you will get the show a little bit early. So, woo, bonus. Um, that is not to say that the show will ever be, that I will ever charge money for the show. I will not ever do that. The show will always be free to anybody who wants to listen. Um, and, uh, it's just, if you want to get it a couple days early, you know, you can kick into the Patreon and I would appreciate it. Uh, thank you all so much. Um, thank you to, thank you to, uh, Hermagoras, Pontus Fredrickson, uh, Andrew Buchanan, Damon Bowles, Marco van Putin, uh, Ryan Patrick and ineptus in Instar- uh, Thank you all so much for your support. Uh, it really means a lot to me. And, um, I think that is about it for this week. And, uh, I hope you have a good week and I will see you next time. Here's the bloops. Renaissance is an archaeologist uh, an archeologist.